open up with prayer and we'll, we'll dive into the book of Acts together. Well, Father, we thank you for gathering your people here this morning. Lord, we thank you for the good news concerning my father and his left side moving now. And we thank you for just restoring his body in this way, Lord. We um, pray for a full recovery, Lord. I look forward to seeing him today. And uh, we just come to worship you, Lord. We come to study your word and just to learn more about what you have revealed about yourself and about the gospel and about what our response to the gospel should be. Lord, we pray you'll bless our open Bibles, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are still moving through the book of Acts, slowly but surely. Last time we were together, we were looking at Pentecost and Peter's sermon during Pentecost. And today we're going to look at the proper response to the preaching of the gospel. Uh, We're going to look at a famous passage, Acts 2.38 and following. Um, A very famous text for multiple reasons. We're going to see today and we're going to take a look at some of the ways in which people have misapplied and misused uh, Acts 2.38. And that text has been misused by a lot of different groups, a lot of different religions. And we're actually going to use um, some of those errors to look at how they misapplied it, how they should have applied it. And at the end of looking at all these different errors, maybe we'll see and come to a fuller picture of the truth. So the context for us, as I said, is Peter's sermon. Um, Peter's sermon was really began in response to the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and in, in the miraculous nature. And Peter's explanation for the miraculous nature of what was happening at Pentecost, he pointed to Joel chapter 2 and said, this is what is happening. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Peter continued in his sermon to, I kind of bullet pointed the highlights of this sermon. His second point was, this is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And then he said that these mighty works, these wonders um, that Jesus had done were all attested to you. He's speaking to the Jews who are in Jerusalem and he says, all the mighty works that Jesus did uh, were done in your midst. You guys know what Jesus has done. He then argued that the death of Jesus was no accident, but it was actually according to God's sovereign plan. Um, And then he went to a couple of Psalms. He went to Psalm 16. He went to Psalm 110. Um, From Psalm chapter 16, Peter was, was bringing out the point that David had written about the fact that the Messiah would not see corruption. Your, your Holy One will not see decay. And he quoted Psalm 16 and arguing that because David was still in the grave there in Jerusalem and was, and was decaying, that that psalm could not have been fulfilled in King David. King David, David must have been looking forward to a fulfillment, which was the risen Jesus Christ. Um, he then went to Psalm 110, which Psalm 110 is... The famous uh, Ascension Psalm where Jesus, where, where that Psalm, King David said, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's a, a, a psalm for seeing and foretelling of the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And so Peter made all these arguments for Jesus being the Christ. And I like how he ended there. He said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So from all of those arguments that Peter brought forth from what Jesus had done, what Jesus had said, these scriptures that Jesus had fulfilled, he said, know for certain, Israel, that Jesus is the Christ. And then he, interestingly enough, ended off by saying, this Jesus is the Christ whom you crucified. Whom you crucified. And so, let's pick up then in verse 37. Because here's kind of the response from the people at Peter's great sermon. Peter's spirit-inspired sermon. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now, in my notes, I just have here highlighted a preacher's dream. That's what you want to hear, right? You go out and evangelize. You're preaching the gospel. That's the response that you want to hear is, is the response from somebody who's hearing the preaching, the conviction that's brought, and they want to respond. They want to know, if Jesus is in fact the Christ, what shall I do? What, what should be my response? What does God uh, want from me? And... We're going to look today at Peter's answer to that great question. Brethren, what shall we do? Um, It's also interesting. I pointed it out last week. I'll just mention it again here that um, this conviction and this desire to respond correctly by the people wasn't brought on by what is typically the the method of a lot of evangelism today where people run around and tell people, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And you hope by saying things like that that the people are going to be like, oh, well, you know, that sounds nice. What, I, I, what do I need to do to get along with that idea? Um, Peter actually just called them murderers. The last thing he says was, you guys crucified the Christ. Um, I think that's interesting just to put in perspective. The, 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 the angle that Peter was coming at as he preached the gospel to them was he was bringing forth and displaying for them this great wickedness. The, the, the greatest sin that there is is crucifying Jesus Christ. He didn't avoid bringing that up to them and saying, this, you guys murdered the Christ and bringing that uh, sin to bear. Um, because this is what happens when the truth is preached and the truth is accompanied by the Spirit of God, which certainly was happening at Pentecost. You get the right response. People aren't turned away by the reality of their sin. People aren't turned off to coming to Christ when you talk to them about how they've sinned against God. When the Spirit is at work, people are convicted and they want to be made right with God. And that's what we see here happen in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is at work, the truth is being proclaimed, and the people respond rightly saying, what shall we do? Now, Verse 38, this famous passage. Now we have Peter's response to the question. Peter's response to their question of what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent 
And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That's, that's a famous passage. Hopefully you're somewhat familiar with it. Um, let, me ask, let me ask this question to you guys. Feel free to answer. Um, is, is that a kind of response that you would give to the question when somebody asks you, what shall I do to be saved? What's, what's maybe unique about the way Peter responds there that maybe is not typically the way that we respond? What's that's, yeah, that's definitely an aspect of it. Yep, you and your household. We don't normally include that kind of language, do we? No. No, what else? Right, that also, yes. He doesn't mention faith. He just says repent, right? Um, true. What else? There's another big one there. Right. That's that usually is the, the deal. Um, the fact that Peter includes the act of baptism when when speaking to these people in in the very context of having your sins forgiven, that's what uh, stumbles a lot of folks is the fact that he includes the, the, the good and righteous act of responding through baptism in this context of speaking about how to have your sins forgiven. A lot of a lot of uh, ink has been spilled over why, you know, why Peter included that language. But yes, everything you guys, we're going to look at all those aspects of what everybody else mentioned as well. Right? Our, our typical response is repent and believe. Right? Um, I think we're probably a little timid at including anything such as baptism in, in a, just a single statement like Peter used because... Because why? why? Why would we be cautious of, why would we not in our time and day want to include repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Why, why don't we say that? I don't think I've ever responded, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So what are, what, why would we be hesitant to use that language? To see their walk first before we baptize them, right? Yeah. Right, 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 right. So, so we're trying to protect the doctrine of justification by faith, right? We're very careful that we're not including any kind of good work, even the good work of baptism, which it should be the first response to a repentant sinner. The first thing that the, the new Christian does is get baptized, um, which is why Peter's able to, to include that here. It is synonymous with your time of conversion, um, as we'll see, especially here in the first century, um, as people were getting converted here. Um, but yeah, we're trying to not include any any works. We're trying to to clarify and protect in people's minds the understanding that they're saved and justified by faith in Christ alone. Just and we're afraid that there might be some confusion um, in their minds as far as what what their faith is in. Uh, I think I think that's the reason we don't normally speak like this so um so we're going to address this text today i have five different aberrant views or or misuses of acts chapter 2 verse 38 and 39 here Uh, these texts have been used by many different groups to kind of propagate 
different errors, and we'll look at all those different errors and the way people use this text wrongly and address each one, hopefully, you know, real succinctly, but by the end, hopefully, we'll have a better understanding of, of exactly what this text is getting at. And so, my first point before getting to the first error is, if you look there in verse 40, I think this is something to understand, especially as you go through the book of Acts, and we're reading um, some of these sermons uh, by the apostles, and um, the first thing to notice is that as all the commentators agree, what Luke records for us is most likely a summation of what's being said, right? Like we went through Peter's sermon. That probably wasn't the entirety of the sermon, but maybe like the highlights, it's a summation, right? Um, That would only be like a three-minute sermon. You know, we preach, even we preach longer than the Apostle Peter if if that was it. But notice what it says in verse 40, kind of to my point. It says, with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them. So even the, the text tells us that, the, that Peter said much more than simply repent and be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, you see. So um, obviously I think in that continuation, in that exhortation, even with the many words that he added, there would have been clarification to any you know, questions that came up or... Um, doctrinal issues, I guess you could say, like that, that people might have been stumbled over. Um, you, see, you see that happening throughout the Gospels, like Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth. There's questions, there's challenges, there's responses. I'm sure all that happened um, here with Peter and the apostles. So um, the text itself that says that Peter went on to clarify. So to me, I think that's an important note. Um, that we're not making all of our theology ride on the single statement, right? Um, Especially if it says that Peter goes on to clarify. Uh, I've thought about this also. Notice in in verse 40 also, you could make a similar error there where it says uh, the language, uh, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation, right? Right? Um, do we save ourselves? Well, in one sense, no, we don't save ourselves, right? Paul explicitly says that we're saved by grace, it's not of ourselves. So, what are you saying, Peter? Are you contradicting Paul? Well, of course not. Um, There's different senses that we use uh, these kinds of words. Um, There is, of course, the sense in which we are responsible to repent and believe and be baptized. So, it's perfectly okay that, that Peter uses this language, especially um, when the Bible tells us that he went on to speak many more words and clarify. So, as we look at a, as a text like this, and I'm not sure, I'm sure as we go through some of these errors, you guys will be like, oh yeah, I've heard that, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that error. Um, these different groups will, will come to mind, but I just put here, major rule of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is is a name for how to interpret the Bible. A major rule of hermeneutics is that the Bible interprets the Bible, right? So um, anything that sounds questionable or, or isn't thoroughly explained in the Bible, you go to other passages of the Bible that maybe deal with the same subject or use the same words, and you use all of that to interpret 
Um, you, a lot of times you'll hear people say, interpret the unclear by the clear, right? So if there's a, a Bible verse that, ah, I don't really even understand what they're saying. Well, you go to other passages where that subject is dealt with more fully, and then you develop your thought theology and interpret the unclear text by a more clear text, um, which, which sounds nice, right? Um, the debate ends up coming, well, which are the clear texts? Because a lot of people would say, for this text, Peter's explicitly asked, what must I do to be saved? He gives a succinct answer, so we should be using that, versus maybe a more full, you know, explanation from like Paul on how we're saved, right? So uh, my argument here is we're not going to use the short, succinct answer. We're going to take a more thorough explanation that we get from a lot of other texts, um, including Peter's own words elsewhere, That'll be very helpful to, um, to understand what he means when he uses the language of baptism. Um, what, so which, uh, which school of theology would, would we categorize this idea of, of saying that we need to understand, have a, a, an overarching understanding of different doctrines? Wayne Grudem has written a book. What, what's the title of Wayne Grudem's famous Systematic theology, right? So we use our systematic theology. What systematic theology is the, is, the, is the discipline of trying to understand what all of the Bible says about different subjects. So the doctrine of soteriology or how we are saved in a, in a systematic theology study, you're going to go through what all of the Bible says about, about how to be saved. You're going to try to put it all together and, and have your doctrine on salvation. Um, so you're going to, first thing you're going to do when you do that is go to all the clear, um, lengthy passages that describe salvation. You're going to try to get your understanding of that, and then you'll use that total understanding that you now have to try to interpret these tricky, um, kind of debated passages. So that, that's why we do systematic theology. You have to have systematic theology. So let's dive into some of these errors. So the first error, I think, is what we already hinted at. It's the error of works righteousness. Um, People who do not believe in justification by faith alone, people who don't believe that we're saved by trusting in Christ alone, but that we also must have a certain amount of good works to be saved, um, and a lot of them point to this text in particular saying, hey, look, the, the good work of baptism is, baptism is mentioned as being required for salvation. Um, and this is, so I kind of tried to list all the different groups for all these different errors. I mean, this is basically almost every other aberrant Christian religion believes in some system of works righteousness, some system of uh, justification by faith. Uh, is explicitly a, a Orthodox Christian position. So, you know, you have Roman Catholicism who, de- who denies justification by faith alone. They point to this text that, hey, you know, you must be baptized or you're not going to have your sins forgive- uh, forgiven. Peter said, um, you have your Church of Christ. If you guys are familiar with the Church of Christ, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, they all um, add good works to the requirement for future justification and salvation. Um, and they all point to texts 
actually this text in particular is used by all of them. So, um, and as I said, that all those religions require much more than just baptism to be saved, but they do in particular point to passages like this um, to say that you must be baptized to be saved. So, let's turn to First uh, Peter real quick and see uh, Peter himself gives clarification on his doctrine, on his understanding of uh, baptism. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, there the apostle Peter kind of explains in his epistle um, what he means when he speaks of baptism and what that symbolism represents and what it doesn't mean, which I think is the interesting part of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, the this is, the, in the previous section there, Peter has been talking about Noah and the salvation of Noah through judgment and how baptism corresponds to um, being saved through the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's another text. They point to baptism saves you. Peter just said it. Interesting, right, that Peter uses that language? We don't talk like this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But here's the important part, because now he clarifies for us. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the act of getting wet that's important. It's not as if something happens with the water that cleanses. But what is it? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the aspect of this, an appeal to God for a good conscience, I would say is the act of faith. You're appealing to God for the forgiveness and cleansing of sins. That's the act of faith, is calling to God, appealing to God for a good conscience. And it says, through the water of baptism, no, it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what, if you go to passages like Romans 6, that is the picture of baptism, is resurrection in Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. You go under, you die, you rise to a new life in Christ. That's what baptism is the picture of. Now, I just did something that I don't recommend. So what I just did was, this trouble passage was brought up, Acts 2.38. Hey, Peter says you must be baptized to have your uh, sins forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. And what did I do? I ran off to another passage. See, anybody catch it? You didn't like that, did you? Right? You're like, yeah, I saw that. Um... I don't recommend that. Do I think that's a helpful clarification, what Peter himself says? Yes, definitely. Um, But I think as far as like your evangelistic, um, because do you guys get annoyed? Like say you're trying to share the gospel and say you come across a Roman Catholic, you don't know the Roman Catholic, and you're talking to them about justification by faith. And maybe you quote to them Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And what do they do? They never present, oh, I understand Ephesians, or I, I believe Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's how I understand it. What do they do? They run off to James chapter 2, right? They don't even deal with the passage. Um, and so I think it's, it's a good idea to not, 
not make it the habit of running away from a text that gets presented to you, I think the best thing you can do is present a positive understanding of uh, whatever passage they're bringing to you. You know what I mean? Like, um, we need to understand all of these passages need to fit into your theology, and, and we don't want to, in a sense, um, even if it's just the appearance of, hey, I, I can't really deal with that passage, let me run to a different passage. Because that's what ends up happening to me a lot in evangelism when you're presenting uh, Scripture to people that, that you know doesn't fit their theology and they don't deal with it. They run off to another passage that they think does. And so it's almost just like this cat and mouse game where we all have the texts that fit our the- seem to fit our theology better, so we just run to those and we're not able to deal with the more difficult passages. Um, so here, in the context of what's happening, Peter mentioning baptism. What, so what you have here, especially I would say in the, in the first century context, is you have this very common uh, scenario. As we go through the book of Acts further, we'll see this. The very common way that this plays out is the gospel is preached, people repent, and are immediately, as in like that moment, that day, baptized. Right. So there's definitely a very direct correlation between the act of baptism and the time when people are saved and converted. Um, I think that's kind of different for us. Right. Um, How many of us were baptized the day that we believed? Anybody? I wasn't. Um, So why why is that different? Why? Why in the book of Acts do people repent and believe? I mean, oh, there's water. What prevents me? They get baptized. I mean, why don't we, why don't we do that now? Any ideas why the difference? I've got my ideas. Jason, you get right, right. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's it. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I put. That's what I had kind of articulated myself was the seriousness. I mean, if you're a first century Jew and you take Christian baptism, if you associate, associate yourself with this, this, this one who's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, um, when, when most of Judaism did not believe that, they believe he was a heretic who deserved to be crucified. Um, if you go and associate yourself with this new sect that they believed it to be, um, the outcome of that was very serious. I mean, uh, you, you most likely, unless your whole household believed, uh, if you were the only one, you would have probably been kicked out of your household. Uh, you, you're, you're, um, I mean, if you look at the Old Covenant um, commands on what to do with somebody who tells you to go after other gods and things of that nature, I mean, I'm surprised these Christians just weren't getting stoned um, like Stephen, every one of them, you know. Um, they weren't being too consistent with upholding their old covenant commands, you know, to stone their family members who told them to go after other gods. But 
um, yeah, the repercussions of becoming a Christian and getting baptized publicly, your family probably would have disowned you. You probably would have lost your job because the Jews employed the Jews, right? The, the, the covenant community was just so tight like that. Um, you probably would have lost your job. Um, you could have been killed, as some of them were. You would have been kicked out of the synagogue, most likely, right? Like you would have been put out of the synagogue, which is to the Jews, this is where, this is where God is. This is where I worship. Um, that would have, they would have felt that. Um, so, yeah, I think that is the real difference is that back then, if somebody was willing to get baptized publicly, you had a very good confidence that these people believe in Christ. These people are willing to, to lose everything. I'm baptizing that person. You know, that person is, a, I'm, I'm treating them as a brother. Now, there's almost no repercussions, no negative repercussions of being baptized, right? Your family will pat you on the back. Oh, I'm so happy. And then you go on with life. And um, it, there's just not the serious repercussions. Uh, so, we, so we try, I guess, to... Uh, to kind of fill the gap by probing, you know, giving a time of some counseling, you know, trying to make sure that that folks really do grasp um, the reality of, of what conversion is, of, of making sure that they understand rightly who God is, what the gospel is, all of these things. You know, we, we feel like because the pressure isn't there, we need to really try to make sure um, that folks are in fact serious and are in fact saved. So, yeah, I think, I, I think there really is something to that distinction. But, be, but because that was true, because people were getting, what I'm saying with the Acts 2.38 and Peter mentioning baptism, because that was the way that it went down when people repented, they got baptized. Baptism was, was, just, was, was part of your conversion. You know what I mean? It, it happened when you believed. When these guys were preaching, they were baptizing. So it's, I'm just saying it's very, um, it's very natural for the language of baptism to be included with conversion um, happening for people. So it's, to me, it, it, it shouldn't really be surprising even that Peter mentions this um, because baptism is the symbol of what, of what um, is happening in somebody's heart and in their life. Uh, mentioning baptism seems very relevant, actually. Um, what else here? Yeah, I did say, we did mention, I think that's the big one, is, is it's awkward to us that he mentions a good work like baptism with salvation because we're so adamant in trying to protect um, that we're saved by faith apart from works and, and because... Baptism obviously is a work. We want to uh, be careful about adding any confusion to people's minds about their, about their conversion or what's saving them. Um, a lot of times in the baptismal waters, the pastor is clarifying for everyone, this is not what saves them, right? Their faith in Christ is what saves them. We still, we still do that now. Um, an interesting point from the book of Galatians with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 I think this is, this is an interesting point that I've heard made. As far as dealing with, with these other religions, these other systems that teach that you're saved, you're justified by faith, plus your works. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul there is combating these false teachers who have come to the church in Galatia and are saying, 
They're, they're not saying faith in Christ is bad or don't put your faith in Christ. What they're saying is faith in Christ, but you must also be circumcised, right? Um, they're adding one thing. So think of it like this. They're adding one work to justification by faith. And what does Paul tell them they've just done by adding one work? Anybody remember the, the language from Galatians chapter 5? You've nullified the grace of God. Meaning by adding one work, you've severed yourself from Christ, he says. You've nullified the grace of God. It's no longer grace by adding the work of circumcision. And so, does it make any less sense for people to come along and say, well, they're not adding the sign of circumcision. We're adding the sign of baptism as requirement for salvation. I think Paul would give them the same response. You know, um, you're, you're nullifying the grace of God by saying somebody has to do X, Y, or Z. Even if those are very good X, Y, and Zs, uh, you're nullifying the grace of God. Um, you have the famous point and argument that the thief on the cross was saved. Jesus himself gave him assurance of salvation. He wasn't baptized, right? Um, you have the reality that Jesus didn't baptize people. It's, it's explicitly for whatever reason says that Jesus did not baptize his, his uh, disciples did the baptisms. Um, if baptism was the thing, you would think Jesus would have been a part of that himself. Uh, and then you also have in 1 Corinthians, you have the interesting point that Paul makes where he, he, he mentions a couple of folks that he uh, did baptize, but he can't even remember the other folks in Corinth who he... In Paul's mind, baptism is not the thing, right? He's like, oh, I baptized some of you. The other ones, I can't even remember who. Um, he says, also there, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So you see the distinction in Paul's mind there between baptism and the gospel. It's not the same thing. Baptism is not even included in the gospel. Uh, he was not sent to do... Paul was definitely sent to convert the Gentiles, he says, I was not sent to baptize. So I see that I think there's a clear distinction in the Apostle Paul's mind between the necessity of baptism and somebody being saved. Just a couple extra points along that error. Um, the second error, the second error we're going to look at from this text is a doctrine referred to as baptismal regeneration. Uh, baptismal regeneration is this teaching that through the act of baptism, you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, is anybody familiar with any groups that really push that idea from this text especially? Have you guys had to deal with, with that teaching? Church of Christ is famous for this understanding of baptism that it's by the act of baptism that you receive the Holy Spirit. No baptism, no Holy Spirit. It's, it's that um, serious. Uh, Roman Catholicism has a form of this. Um, when their infants are baptized, they are cleansed from original sin through the baptism. Uh, Lutherism, Lutheranism has a, Lutheranism has a, a, a doctrine of uh, baptismal regeneration as well. Uh, I would say the, 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 the reason they stay orthodox and the reason they don't have a heretical, I guess you could say, view of, of baptism 
is that they believe when the infant is when when the infant is baptized, they're regenerated, meaning similar to what we mean, you you are given spiritual life, but they're not saying that child has repented, believed, been justified. They've just been brought into this new state through the sacrament of the word and the water, right? Yeah, wrong, um, wrong. But uh, because they're not saying that baby is justified or saved or had any sins forgiven, we let them into the, we let them into orthodoxy. We allow them in. Um, so, but can you see why they would use this text? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they're, they're making a lot of that inclusion of Peter's mentioning baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit. So I think we deal with this uh, error in the very similar way that we deal with the previous error of saying that the act of baptism is required for salvation or I would say any aspect of salvation. Um, Obviously, Peter doesn't seem to be differentiating what aspects of the proper response. So what is the proper response to the preaching of the gospel? Repentance, faith, following through with baptism, continuing a full life of sanctification and, and, and obedience to Christ. You could say all those things, and when you say all those things, you're not saying all of those things uh, get you saved, right? Uh, I think Peter isn't differentiating these different aspects of what justifies. He seems to just be saying, hey, what's the proper response to the gospel? Have genuine repentance that leads to um, obedience, which first thing is being baptized, and that's genuine faith, and, and those people will be saved. I think, I think that's what, what he's saying here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Um, I know this next, I'm going to take us to another text in Acts. If you want to start turning there, Acts chapter 22. I think this is a more difficult text. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. I remember um, when I first got saved, I remember meeting a, a family who had just come out of the Church of Christ, and I remember discussing with them, and I remember bringing up Acts 2.38, and they said, yeah, that's a tough verse, but that's not the one that, helped, that had us, um, that uh, kept us in the Church of Christ for so long. It was actually Acts 22.16. I'm like, what is Acts? I didn't know the text. Um, and when, when they read it to me, I said, wow, that, that is an interesting uh, text. So Acts 22.16 says, um, this is Ananias with Paul. Ananias tells Paul, now why do you wait Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Right? You can see why they would reference that text saying that baptism is what washes away your sins. Um, I thought, wow, I've never really noticed that text. That's interesting language. That's a tough one. Um, And this family was saying that text is what kept them in the Church of Christ for many years, which before I think in talking to them, Uh, what happened is what we're saying is as they studied the Bible, as they studied salvation as a whole, they started seeing how because the Bible so clarifies that we're saved by faith apart from our works, they finally started struggling with, so how does that mesh with like what Peter said there? I mean, how, how, 
they, they're definitely contradictory. One, we're not interpreting one of those right, and they settled that the explicit, um, lengthy uh, treatises in the Bible given to the fact that we're saved by faith apart from works must mean that um, these short excerpts need to be interpreted in light of that, and so they, so they kind of abandoned the Church of Christ interpretation of that. So, what about this text? Because like I say, um, you don't want to run away from this text when they bring it up and say, yeah, that definitely sounds like what your doctrine teaches, but I have another verse that, you know, over here. So what, what is the meaning of this text and how does it not compromise uh, justification by faith alone? Well, the, there's a very interesting exegetical point um, in this text, and it is the parsing out of this participle calling on his name so calling on his name sounds present tense to me in it in in all the translations that you know all of them king james esv niv new american standard i mean i even looked at the crazy ones like the message and all those just seeing if anybody um gave a more literal uh, explanation of that, and they really don't. I mean, this is kind of like an obscure text that, I mean, doesn't really get referenced a lot, but it is, it is kind of troubling. But the interesting thing is that calling on his name, the calling is in the aorist tense in Greek. Aorist is a past tense verb, and it just doesn't really get communicated um, by, by translated calling. That sounds present, ongoing action, but, it, but it's an aorist tense verb. So I think if you remember that, you can, if anybody you're dealing with, and Church of Christ is, are, are sharp. They're pretty, they're pretty uh, militant. They're pretty dogmatic. They, they might even be able to reference a Greek interlinear with you when you point this out. But I think even if you did, it would make your point because any interlinear is going to, there's no debate about the grammar of that, of that word. It's in the aorist tense. It's in the past tense. So Kenneth Wiest um, Kenneth Wiest wrote like a, a three-volume. There are these blue, if you ever like it, uh, half-price books or something, and you see this set. It's a four-book set. Three of them are like word studies, like A.T. Robertson has word studies. It's kind of similar where you just go through the it's New Testament. You go through the New Testament, and any important words he kind of expounds upon and does a little study of them. Real good to have alongside of your Bible study. So he does a... a, a a three-book word study, and the fourth book is a what what you would call like a, an expounded literal translation, where he tries to bring out every tense of every verb and every participle, and give you the the, the literal, very full meaning of it. It's unreadable. I mean, when you read it, you're like, "Who? Nobody talks like this. Why would you talk like this?" But it helps because all of these nuances that we miss in the way our English just kind of smooths everything out. Um, so let me read for you his, uh, because he hits on the point. He recognizes this is a past tense verb. He translates it as so. Kenneth Wiest translates Acts twenty two sixteen as, Having arisen, be baptized, and wash away your sins, having previously called upon his name. So he's trying to bring out the fact, hey, that's a, that's a past tense verb. So why is that relevant? Well, the being baptized and washing away your sins is um, predicated upon a previous uh, 
act, which was you've already called upon the name of the Lord, right? So again, that act of faith, the calling upon the name of the Lord, the um, calling upon the Lord for a clear conscience is that act of faith that really baptism is the symbol of. So that, that's Acts 22, 16. I don't know if you guys want to do a further study on that. I think that is uh, one of the more difficult passages um, in this controversy, but um, I think the grammar there is on our side for sure. Um, so, baptismal regeneration. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. Um, there's an interesting exception to that doctrine that, oh no, unless you're baptized, you don't get the Holy Spirit. Does anybody know where that ex- explicit... Uh, exception would be that basically undoes that that necessity that unless you get baptized you don't receive the holy spirit actually now that i think about there may be a couple but pentecost the spirit falls and they haven't been baptized right yeah um so the 120 right in the upper room are we assuming they've been baptized we're assuming they haven't been baptized Yeah, Jesus wasn't baptizing. The disciples were. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I'm assuming they were. Could be wrong about that. But in the book of Acts, there's an explicit uh, farther in, in Acts chapter 10. What's in Acts chapter 10? Who gets saved in Acts chapter 10? Anybody remember? Cornelius. So what happens with Cornelius? Here, we'll read, let's turn to this one real quick. Acts chapter 10. Verse 43, this is an interesting passage. And interestingly enough, it's Peter here as well, which is helpful, right? Peter has experienced the one who's, who wrote Acts 2.38. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness. That's interesting. I just included that because I always think that's interesting. All the prophets bear witness to... Christ. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. They forgot to mention baptism there. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, so Peter shows up to Cornelius' house, he's preaching the gospel that all of the prophets bear witness to Christ. While he's still preaching, something happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, the preaching of the gospel, this is one of those times where, if you remember, where the evidence of the Holy Spirit is seen through the speaking of tongues. Um, It just follows that pattern there that Jesus said, you know, you'll receive power to go to the Jews, the Samaritans, Judea, all the way to the end of the earth. 
um, that pattern flowed to where every time that new people group received the gospel, the spirit would fall. There would be evidence through things like the speaking of tongues. So everybody knows, and it's unarguable that Cornelius, this Gentile, has received the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. He hasn't been baptized yet. Peter says, wow, you've received the Holy Spirit. You've been saved. You've been converted. It's obvious through this sign uh, in wonder, and now you need to go be baptized. So it's just an example of what is an obvious exception to this rule of saying, unless you're baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, because that certainly did not happen for Cornelius and his whole household. Um, They heard the preaching. They believed. They received the Spirit. The apostles could see that they had received the Spirit. It was confirmed. Then they got baptized. So just another interesting point um, in dealing with, with that issue. Um, third issue, third error from Acts 2.38. Wow, and we are out of time already. Let me see. Let's do these real quick. Maybe like one minute apiece. So the error here is um, known as modalism, sabellianism, one is Pentecostalism, Jesus only. Uh, are you guys familiar with that language? So all of those are historic and current groups who deny the Trinity. So why, what about Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? What about that text lends to their uh, theology that... So what they believe, they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all eternally coexisted together. They believe in a unipersonal God. They believe that God is one person, not three. So they believe that God, and the reason it's called modalism is they believe that God, the unipersonal God, appears at different modes at different times. So you could say in the Old Testament, the unipersonal God revealed himself as the Father. In the New Testament, the Incarnation, he, he takes on a new mask, a new mode. He reveals himself as the Son. Then the Son goes back to heaven. That unipersonal God comes back as the Holy Spirit. So they do not believe in, in a triune God, that three uh, distinct persons that eternally coexist. They don't believe that. They believe it's just one person. Um, and, the, and these new groups are like Jesus only. You'll, I've seen bumper stickers, Jesus only. What they're saying is, they believe that Jesus is the unipersonal God who has taken these different forms, right? So um, how does this, how do they use this verse? Anybody familiar with that? It has to do with be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So this group um, references the Great Commission, right? Go out to all the world make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what they make a lot out of is the fact that Jesus said, baptize them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you turn to the book of Acts, and interestingly enough, every time these ba- the baptismal um, formula is mentioned, it always says, baptize in the name of Jesus. And the, so they're making a lot of that. So they're saying, well, what is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. Fits their theology perfect, right? All three modes are Jesus. 
Jesus only. So that's how they use um, this text. Of course, taking our systematic theology into account, um, a unipersonal God makes no sense out of a lot of things in the Bible, uh, like most explicitly the, the, the prayer life of Jesus, which Jesus is communicating to the Father. That doesn't work in a Unitarian uh, mindset, right? I mean, who's, is he talking to himself? Is he, um, how, how does the Bible talk of the Father sending the Son or the Son sending the Spirit? right? Uh, One of my favorites, and this is kind of the one I always point out to my kids every time we get to it, I'm like, man, this is God. This is God fully revealed here is like the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father in heaven speaking, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father's there. The Son is there being baptized. The Spirit appears as a dove. You see all three distinct persons of the Trinity all in one place, all revealed at the same time, That's pretty exceptional, actually, in the Bible to see that revelation there um, in that way. But it's it's there. Um, That doesn't that doesn't fit the uh, the Unitarian understanding. So they're making a lot out of in Jesus's name Uh, when the Bible uses in the name of the Lord or in the name of Jesus. that connotation is referencing the, you're referencing the authority of Jesus. You're referencing the authority of the Lord. You're referencing your relationship. In a, so like when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying we pray by the um, representation that Jesus gives us, by the authority that Jesus gives us, by, by our association to Jesus um, because of what he has done to us, his mediation for us. We're praying in that authority, that name. We're, we're praying in what Jesus can do for us. That, that's, the, that's the way the language is used. They take name to mean like God's name is Jesus. As, you know, that's, it's a misuse of, of the language in that sense. Um, I had two more. I'm just going to mention them. We won't, we won't dig into them. Uh, and we can talk about it later if you want to. Uh, the other error that this text is a reference for is what I call like easy believism or non-lordship salvation. Um, I don't know if you guys, cheap grace, some people call it, but it's, the, it's, the, it's a teaching that to be saved, uh, they don't believe that you have to repent, you just have to believe. They make a distinction between faith and repentance and say that to tell someone they need to repent to be converted is like works righteousness. You're telling them they have to do something. Um, I had some really good arguments against that in here that we won't get to. Um, but in short, how do they misuse this text? Well, I say they ignore it. I mean, clearly Peter says, I mean, the first words out of Jesus' mouth was repent. So they, they do something with the, the, the word repent. They don't um, have really a biblical understanding of of what it's referring to Um, so they wouldn't say we don't believe in repentance they just redefine repentance to mean um, something other than what the bible means by it lastly i was going to deal with the uh, infant baptism question Um, the infant baptism question so that's the presbyterians the methodists the lutherans uh, roman catholics all of those groups are going to make an argument from this passage 
on why we should be baptizing our children because Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of, of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and your children. Now what's, what are they, how, how are they messing that up? What are they getting wrong there? Well, obviously they, they're not finishing the verse because the verse goes on to say, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter himself qualifies who of the children of Israel should be baptized and who of those who are far off, meaning who? The Gentiles. Who of all those people, your children in the Gentiles, should be getting baptized? All who the Lord our God calls to himself, which obviously is a reference to the effectual call of God to salvation. We baptize those. Um, otherwise, if that passage is saying you have to baptize your children, all of your children, it's also saying you have to baptize all who are far off, meaning all the Gentiles, meaning we should be running around like Nacho Libre, like dunking people in the water, right? You know, unwillingly, because Peter said, baptize, you know, our children and all who are far off. So obviously, obviously that that isn't it. So <clears throat> Let me at least read the last two verses and we'll, we'll finish. <clears throat> Verse 40. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his words were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Thank you.